What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, Valdana, I don't know if I've ever told you about this, but sometimes I literally have daydreams that I own a farm and I'm like off in retirement as a farmer. I think everybody has those dreams, no? I don't know. Do they? Especially if you live in the city, you want a, a sort of um, more nature-filled life. A more nature-filled life. I guess that makes yeah. sense. Or you want a garden or something. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't want a giant 500-acre farm that I actually have to work at. I want a couple few acres. <laughs> you don't want to have to do any work. I'll plant some raspberries, maybe get some sheep. I think sheep would require a lot of work. You think? I think you just spring yes. them loose, let them eat your grass, and shave them down once a year. No, There's I don't more, think more so. More to it than that. What else do you need to do? <laughs> Feed them. I don't know. Well, Bathe that's what, them. That's what the grass is for. But anyway, look, it's a good week to daydream about being a farmer because if look, let's be honest, if today is Wednesday, May twenty fourth, if we tried to cover the market right now with the debt ceiling issue going on. And that being so fast moving and and such a unpredictable thing, I th- feel like by the time we got done, everything would have changed and the, and the news would be so different. So I think for this week, let's all daydream about owning a farm. If I let you onto my farm, I know you refuse to join my professional network on LinkedIn for, for, for I don't know, but if I were to allow you onto my imaginary farm network, would, what, would you, what would you grow on my farm? Tomatoes. Just tomatoes? We can use them to feed your sheep. I don't think sheep eat tomatoes. I think they just eat the grass. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> no cauliflower? You wouldn't grow cauliflower? You're a city slicker. Yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm going to let you on my farm, on my imaginary farm. Fine. I won't let you on my imaginary farm. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> but our guest might have a farm. I want to bring him in. It's Carter Malloy, CEO and founder of Acre Trader. Carter, I'm so happy to have you on the podcast and talk about your company. Thanks for having me here. First of all, are you on a farm? <laughs> not today, though. Many days I am. I also, while I would love to invite you guys to my farm, I'm also not really sure I want to join. See, there you go. <laughs> I'm not the only one. <laughs> fine, fine. I'm alone on my farm with my raspberry and sheep, tomato eating sheep. But Carter, tell us about AcreTrader, really a fascinating platform you've started here that actually lets people and I suppose institutions invest in fractional ownerships of farms. Talk, talk to us a little bit how it started, how it works, um, and what's going on with Acre Trader. For the quick background of the business, we've been here for five or six years working on this simple mission of connecting farmers that want to grow their business to investors that want exposure to farmland in their portfolio. I grew up in a farming family here in Arkansas. I spent a dozen years in professional equity investing, but in the background, I've been buying and selling farmland. 
was a big passion of mine. Come to find out there are a lot of other people that also want exposure. The reality is you may have to go put down a million dollars and then manage a business. And that's a non-starter for most people. So we designed AcreTrader very simply to be a place where an investor can come online, create an account, and within a few minutes and a few clicks, actually invest directly in entities that own farmland. So each week we put up a farm or two that's owned by a unique entity. You, the investor, can come on and invest $10,000, $20,000 or millions of dollars and have exposure and build a portfolio of farmland through our website and through our technology. Okay, so tell us more about how it works and like who the investor base is. So is it accredited investors who are really interested in diversifying their portfolios or what does the makeup of the of the client base look like? That's correct. It is accredited investors on the platform. Now that, that ranges from folks in cities to farmers in rural areas and folks that live near farming to institutions as well, family offices, et cetera. The goal for most folks is to find some stability and some diversification. That's often why we see folks with real interest in farmland is that slow and steady compounding that it can offer to investors. So if I'm a farmer, I I own a farm, I sell it to one of these entities. I guess they serve sort of as the manager of this investment. They collect the rent and distribute it among the investors. Is, Is that basically it? Most often the farmer comes to us actually, and it's usually a farmer that wants to grow. If you think about this from the farmer's standpoint, many farmers are, are in growth mode. They have lots of fixed costs, right? Very expensive equipment, the more inputs, uh, seed and fertilizer is an example that they buy, the better discounts they get. With that type of economy of scale in that business, many farmers are actively in growth mode. So they will come to us and say, hey, I, my neighbor is retiring or for whatever reason, the farm is being sold. There's upwards of $100 billion of farmland that is bought and sold every year in the U.S., so these farmers that are our partners are out actively helping source and find farmland where they want to grow their business. And then you're exactly right. We set that up where they often will have a financial interest in that entity, and then they will either share their revenue or pay a simple rent to that entity, which then can be a cash distribution out to those investors. So the investors, from their angle, they can make money from those cash rents coming in, as well as through appreciation of land over time. And then tell us more about your background and the impetus for starting the company. My dad's a farmer. I've been around it my my whole life. It's just in my blood. I think it's in all of our blood, right? You guys say you have this dream of living an agrarian life. It's because we all did at some point generations back. I spent my life grinding out alpha in public markets and working really long days on a a Bloomberg terminal looking for for alpha. And in the background, I was buying and selling land and realized that here's this multi-trillion dollar asset that's been incredibly productive and stable over time. There, there was no real mechanism for most folks to, to get exposure to it. And so that, that's really the genesis of the business was, uh, frankly, visiting with my dad and telling him that this was in like 2017. And I thought Bitcoin was a terrible investment idea. Really, that, that sparked this conversation of, can we fractionalize farmland? And is there a way where common investors can gain exposure to farmland in their portfolio? What's fascinating is the returns are pretty attractive. Uh, there is actually a farmland index that tracks uh, the, the notional value of, of farmland, I guess, around the country. But talk to us a little bit about sort of that return profile. My understanding, it's it's got a pretty good track record. It's not really correlated with risk assets or even treasuries. It is correlated with inflation to some degree. Talk to us about kind of what you can expect from that return profile and the volatility and whatnot as an investor in farmland? First, it's important to consider what farmland is not. Farmland is not a get-rich-quick scheme, right? This is not, you rarely hear people saying, oh my gosh, I doubled my money on my farmland investment this year. Inversely, you, you also don't hear people saying, oh my gosh, I 
lost all my money on farmland this year. What investors often are looking for is that slow and steady compounding of capital. And you're right, those returns, NACREF is the index that puts out those returns for farmland and timberland. Over the last 20 or 30 years, it's been a fairly consistent low double-digit return, 11 or 12%. Nothing, oh my goodness, but when you compare it to other mainstream asset classes, that return profile is pretty similar over long periods of time. What's more fascinating is the, the consistency of those returns. We You don't have big, huge up years and huge down years that you do across so many other mainstream asset classes. So again, the consistency of the returns and that relative lack of volatility in investor speak means that the sharp ratio of farmland can be very, very attractive, the, the risk-adjusted returns there. And then in addition to that, you, you've also called out a couple of key themes. One is it can, it can be inflation-linked. It's actually shown to be more inflation-linked than than gold in that in times of high inflation or persistent inflation, it tends to outperform. And also that it just doesn't have a lot of correlation to other asset classes. Like it's almost exactly zero in its correlation to the S&P. So from a diversification standpoint as well, we see folks adding farmland to their portfolio to have that sort of set it and forget it part of their portfolio where they're looking for compounding a capital or, or wealth preservation. I was curious about the correlation aspect as well, because I was wondering what pushes prices higher or lower and whether or not, you know, maybe you can tie it to the housing market in some way or what market it would be similar to or where those some of those correlations might lie. So as, as a general sense, we, we don't really see correlations to things like housing market or, or primary asset classes. Where, where we do see some correlation, again, over longer periods of time, uh, is commodities, right? So you think about we, we grow food, fuel, and fiber on, on farmland. That tends to be, uh, th- those tend to be a core component of commodity, CPI, PPI type of uh, indicators. And, and so as a result, we do tend to be linked to that inflation and price over time. And as you can imagine, in the world of supply and demand for farmland commodities, it's fairly straightforward. We have more and more mouths to feed every year and to provide clothing and fuel to, and uh, uh, frankly, like less and less actual physical farmland, right? We, we lose like staggering amounts of farmland every minute and, and every day here in the U.S. to development, to growth, uh, to other, other now, you know, larger solar developments, things like that. So finite supply, it's physical and it's limited and shrinking and growing demand over time for the products that we produce. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So I'm curious about sort of the risk management or, or potential downside uh, of this type of investment. Say, you know, I, I, I buy a fractional ownership in a farm in a state where there's a bad drought or, I don't know, a, a bull weevil outbreak or something that really impacts the production of whatever they're growing on that farm that year, so much so that the farmer can't pay his rent and maybe even, you know, his uh, defaults on his tractor lease or equipment or, or, or whatever, and is kind of has a, a net loss for that year. How does that play out in, uh, in an investment like this? So we tend to think of the world, generally speaking, as opco and propco, right? Your operating company is the farming business. Your property company is, is owning the underlying land. 
And so we tend to look more to be the property company in that scenario, whereas the farmer is the operating company. They often have insurance to help backstop them, often government subsidized insurance at that. So as a, as a tenant and as a partner, uh, farmers tend to be very stable over time. And, and as a result, we, see, we do see very low default and or vacancy rates throughout the ecosystem. As an example of that, in the world of row crops, so thinking about growing important commodities like corn, soybeans, a farmer often pay, pays rent once a year before they plant. It's a incredibly stable uh, across the, the larger world of farmland for that, for that reason. There are certainly risks in there, and, and one of the greatest ones is just underwriting risk, making sure that you're actually, in fact, buying farmland well. And it's really hard to do because there's such a lack of information in our world. So we've invested heavily. We've got a, a large data science and engineering crew here, as an example, helping to build underlying geospatial analytics and data for us just to help inform these underwriting decisions. And we've got a great team as well out building partnerships with farmers, what actually makes it through that, that very, very tight filter that that team employs. I do want to ask you more about that because uh, when I was talking to some of your employees before the podcast, when I met them a couple of weeks ago, I think somebody said it's like, you can almost think of it as like the Bloomberg terminal, but for farmland statistics and for farmland data. First, I want to ask you, um, like, how is farmland performing of late? And I'm also curious how it fared, like what prices did during the pandemic, for instance, and what it's been like over the last couple of years. So as a general statement on the appreciation side, uh, the, the years before the pandemic, the, the five or six years before then, we saw relatively muted appreciation. We have seen some catch up in that long term, you know, call it mean reversion in terms of appreciation in the last few years. So we've seen more meaningful, we'll call it double digit versus your typical single digit type of growth in the underlying asset. The rents themselves or the income coming off the farm, generally speaking, has also grown over that same time period. I'm curious if there's any sort of shareholder democracy type of uh, components to this. You know, if I end up owning, say, 51% of a farm or, uh, you know, I own 30% and of like mind with someone that owns another 30% and we have that majority stake, is, is there sort of an option to say, oh, I, you know, I think we need to start growing corn instead of so soybeans, or I think it's time to sell. Is, is there any sort of equity democracy at action as, as far as ownership, you know, or is it all the, the uh, property companies and the, and the operating companies that, that control that? It tends to be the latter. So we have an investment committee that works on behalf of the investors to consider what the best outcomes are for those investors on an entity by entity basis. And, and the reason for that is, is we, and, and then aside from that, we also have common standardized corporate wraps and governance wraps around these entities for, for obvious reasons. Those tend, those tend to be pretty standardized across our business. And what, what we want to avoid is a 51% owner coming in and bullying, right? And actually making decisions that are averse to the, the best outcome for the rest of that majority or rest of that minority investor pool. So, so as a whole, that tends to be more of the investment committee. Now, look, we speak to investors. We've got an investor relations team here. We hear their input every day and we certainly take that it, that, that means a lot to each of these individual investments. But again, we have to consider the greater whole of, of investment pooled capital there rather than one individual's desires. And so, Carter, to go back to the data mining uh, question, like how do you guys go about gathering your data? What actually makes good farmland when you are evaluating it? And then where in the U.S. or even internationally are you guys operating? So in the U.S., we're in, I think, 18 or 19 states plus Australia. 
So we're uh, well over 40,000 acres invested through our platform. In terms of the what considerations go into underwriting, you, you've got to consider soil profile, so the health of, of that soil. Water, water availability uh, is absolutely crucial and, and or in places like the Midwest, actually getting water off of the farm is, is just as important as it is finding water. So water is a really intense consideration. The climate in that area, what is it good to grow? And then the financial profile, right? So you're, you're underwriting the, the farmer themselves and that's a, an entire separate process. And then the actual bones of that farm, the structure of it. And this is where the data analytics really comes in and is helpful. That's, that can be government data sets that we're processing and bringing in, satellite data sets as well that we're bringing in to our tools. And then importantly, things like comparable sales. I know this sounds ridiculous, but if you're buying a home, you got a pretty good sense of value on price per square foot in that neighborhood. In farmland, not only do we not have that data, but the idiosyncrasies and quality from one parcel to the next can be pretty dramatic. So as a result, for gathering data there, as an example, we're in with data from thousands of courthouses around the U.S., we also have a team of people who are literally going and, and attending auctions virtually or going online and finding information and manually inputting into that system. But that's the reality of, of this older industry you work in is there is a real manual data gathering and, and filtering and analysis process that goes into helping us understand and inform each investment decision. I was clicking around on the website and for a daydream farmer like myself, it's the, the pictures that are just awesome. You know, you, you get these big aerial views of the farms and there's videos sometimes. And I think you've now got me daydreaming about owning a vineyard instead of a farm, Vildana. I, I, I think I might want a vineyard. There's a. It a, sounds a, like you're ready to move. There's you're a Cali- like packing there's a, your bags. A California vineyard I've, I've got my eye on uh, after clicking around Acre Trader. But these tr- daydreams are all adjacent to my daydream of winning the lottery, by the way. That, that, that's the only oh, way right. this, this is all going to happen. Do you even play the lottery? <laughs> I, <laughs> when it's over a billion in payout, <laughs> A, a group of friends of mine springs in action and we, we all buy a, a share. I don't even want to know what the most is that you've ever won. Like 12, 12 cents. Isn't this a podcast about logical and reasonable investing? Yes. <laughs> it's supposed to be. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But Carter, I'm curious what, you know, sort of the regulatory regime is for you? You know, are you are you a registered investment advisor? Like, how does this company exist in the eyes of the regulators? And, and what process do you have to go to both federally and state by state to launch a product like this? We've actually gone quite a bit further and, and stood up our own broker dealer. So Acre Trader has a wholly owned broker dealer in order to, to make sure that we are always compliant with the letter and the spirit of the law. And it extends beyond securities regulation as well, right? There are farming regulations you must take into account, ownership regulations, real estate regulations, state by state. Suffice to say, we have an incredible general counsel and team of attorneys that work with her to help us navigate and, and make sure that we are continuously presenting ourselves and, and the, the investment offerings in the appropriate way. And Carter, I'm also curious about how liquid the market is. I would imagine it's pretty illiquid, but maybe you can tell us more. That's that's correct. So the market as a whole, the percent turnover within farmland is lower than comparative assets. There's still 50 or upwards of $100 billion of this stuff that trades hands every year in the United States alone. So there's still quite a bit of, and there's a ton of reasons why folks would, would buy or sell uh, farmland, right? So there, there's a decent amount of turnover out there. We obviously as a company want to help improve that liquidity within the market. 
And then within our specific business, we've been working on a, a secondary marketplace for a long time where we would hope to allow investors to then exchange individual units or, or shares of those funds. Yeah, I was going to say, I imagine a platform like yours would bring a lot more liquidity, potentially, in theory, to, to this market. But as of now, so if I put, click around the website, it looks like 15000 is tends to be the minimum investment. Is that is that about right? Give or take, that's usually right. Yeah. So, and I, I'm locked in for at least a year, I think, right? It, what's the liquidity event for me if I do want to get out of that investment? How does that work? So the vehicles usually have a five to 10 year life on them. Sometimes it can be longer. That's, this is explicitly stated on the website. Sometimes it can be shorter than that. So there's the duration of the vehicle itself that the investor must take into account and, and the illiquidity that comes along with that. And we, we are looking for, again, this is the, sort of like your patient investing capital. Uh, so setting it on the side a little bit. So there, there is a real liquidity consideration in investing in farmland, not just through our platform, but in, in the asset in general. And then again, I think you nailed the specific point. There's a one-year minimum regulatory lockup on these types of securities, at which point you can have the ability to sell that to friends or family, and, and we hope soon through a secondary marketplace within our business as well. And then can you tell us about any ESG aspects when it comes to investing in farmland? Is that maybe one of the considerations or one of the things clients do tell you when they are looking to invest? Is that a consideration? They do, and it's an important one. We we don't lead with ESG. Often that can be like meeting somebody for the first time and they say, hey, you can trust me. We, we believe as like you know, stewards of, of this world we live in and as human beings, it's the right thing to do. So the impact for farmers and growing their business is certainly important. We enroll each farm in a sustainability standard called leading harvest so that we're not just using words like regenerative or throwing around buzzwords. This is like a, a, a merit-based, checklist-based sustainability standard on a on a per farm basis that we enroll. We actually just passed all of our farms through that here recently. We're very proud of that, that milestone. And then beyond that, we do tend to invest pretty intensely in things like CapEx projects, water projects to make sure we're utilizing water appropriately and not overusing it. We do a good number of organic transitions with, in some cases with farmers as well. So all of those are heavily considered in the investment process and an important part of what we do. We have a, an impact page on our website where investors can can go find that information as well. Carter, obviously in investing, the magic word that always comes up is diversification. And I wonder, obviously, if you're allocating some percentage to farmland, you're, you're diversifying away from uh, a lot of traditional assets. But I wonder, it, in the future, do you, th- is there, do you think there'll be a potential to sort of diversify within farmland? For example, say I I uh, I do want to invest fifteen thousand in farmland, but I want to split up a thousand over fifteen farms. Kind of a a mutual fund of of farmland. Do you, is there a lane for that to happen? Do you think in the future? We've evaluated a number of of pooled vehicle type of products, and I, I think there is a, a likely future where where that exists. And the other consideration then too is we do see lots of folks come build that portfolio with within our our platform. So most of our investors invest in multiple farms. And you can think about our world broken into three primary buckets. That is row crops, so things that you plant each year. Corn, cotton, soybeans, rice, uh, where, where I come from. Then there are permanent crops, things that grow on trees, tend to be longer duration assets. And then timberland is a, a third component of this land investing category. And it's its whole, own unique beast. But we, we do see folks quite often building a diversified portfolio within our website across those land use types. 
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Carter, uh, we can't let you go just yet. We have a, a tradition here on What Goes Up where every week we talk about the craziest <laughs> things we saw in markets this week, or we're flexible this month, this year, whatever you got. Vildana, what, what do you have for us this week? Okay, mine is so good, actually. So Taylor Swift has been on tour, as the entire world knows. I think it's yeah. supposed to be like the highest grossing tour in the history of the world. Uh, and she played in Gillette Stadium a couple of days ago, and it it was pouring rain. And now there's at least one fan, I couldn't actually tell if, the, if it's more than one person, who was at that show, bottled a bunch of the rainwater, put it in containers, and is selling it on Facebook Marketplace for $250 per container. Oh, my gosh. So... Apparently, there were a bunch of comments. I want to say they're from Swifties who are probably serious about this, who commented like, is it rainwater from inside the stadium or is it from the parking lot? Because <laughs> it makes a difference. <laughs> well, that's a big thing. My, my daughter and her friends actually went just to hang out in the parking lot in Philadelphia. And there were like 30,000 people there just listening from the outside, that this is a, it's such a phenomenon, like, like nothing. Uh, all right. Next time I'm sending her with gallon yeah. jugs to collect. You just have to water. label it like the, um, and just like Taylor, you know, whatever happened, like, and there's no room for fraud in that market whatsoever. Nah, I'm sure. None. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell when you look at the rainwater <laughs> that it was from there. How about you, Carter? You see anything crazy recently? You know, the conversation around proposals for banning short selling seems uh, pretty wild to me, like a, a really bad idea. We learned that once around 2008, and yet here we, are, here we are again. And every person just about involved in that decision at that moment came back and said, whoa, that was a bad idea. It didn't help. And here we are again talking about it. So that one's bothering me a little bit. And the other is the obvious conversation around the debt ceiling. And, and let's put aside like the debt ceiling conversation itself, the reality of like black swan events, right? And we get used to the escalator on the way up and we forget there's an elevator on the way down in markets. And the world of black swan events, it feels like as, and maybe as I get older, they tend to pop their heads up more and more. And again, <laughs> like a reason why we like stability in what we do. But in all seriousness, uh, you know, it feels as though many investors don't hedge against that appropriately, right? We, like we see open calls pretty, pretty wide on the, the VIX right now. And so plenty of like doom hedging going on, but it still feels like markets don't appropriately appreciate nor do individual investors hedge those types of risks in their portfolio. Good, good points all around. And it, you know, it reminds me of, I think probably the most appealing or one of the most appealing aspects of farmland is that scarcity notion and that they're not making any more farmland. Um, when's the last time you heard, you know, this neighborhood was torn down and, and a farm was put in its place? So the opposite of crypto there with the never-ending supply, uh, scarce and getting scarcer by the day. So, all right, great stuff all around. I'll give you mine. I, I confess mine's not exactly markets related, but it is 
financial related and it, it speaks to duration risk to, to some degree. I'm stretching that a little bit, but uh, I'll give it to you anyway. This is courtesy of USA Today. Um, I'll just read you the lead because it's, it speaks for itself. An overdue book has been returned to a Northern California library after nearly 100 years. It was the name of the book was A History of the United States by Benson Lossing. It was published in 1892. So missing a few things in, in, a, in A History of the United States published in 1892. Somehow some guy found this in his house, realized it was a library book, returned it to the library. Sure enough, they're ha very happy to have it back 96 years late. So you're probably wondering what's the financial angle of this? Well, now it's time to play the prices precise. What do you think the estimated overdue fee is for a library book that was 96 years late? Start with you, Vildana. Get get out your Texas instrument calculator and start start doing some some math. This is really hard. And also I can't believe that this library is still around and open that they're able to accept this book I know. back. That's, That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Okay. Uh I'm gonna go with three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. Carter, standard prices right rolls in effect. What do you guess the overdue bill is you know even though we're playing prices right rules i'll, I'll lean in a little harder i'll go ten thousand ten thousand seventeen hundred bucks which to me is the crazy part that it wow it, it is only seventeen hundred bucks uh after 96 years i and win yeah uh, <laughs> i think well you're both over but i guess you're, you're closest we'll 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 give it to you okay i win <laughs> all right all right fine <laughs> the rare w for vildana and <laughs> the price is precise but the library, you know, it doesn't say, obviously they're not going to charge this guy because he didn't check it out, presumably. I don't think he's 130 years old. Carter, great to catch up with you and, and hear all about Acre Trader. Really fascinating asset class, I think. And um, I'm going to go back on there now and daydream about, there's a pistachio farm too that caught my eye. What's your, uh, have, have any farms come up that you've just been like, wow, this is, this is the one I, if I had. Eight million, I'd buy this one. You know, I, I have pretty regularly invested on our platform, so I'm, I'm a I'm a big fan of, of what what our team does and and the, the quality of farm offerings that they're yeah, on there. Yeah, very diplomatic answer there. <laughs> I know. I was like, that's not even an answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no one's listening. You can tell us. <laughs> Carter, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Michael, Donna, thank you both. It's been a pleasure. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can find us on Twitter. Follow me, at Vildana Hyrick. Mike Regan is at Reganonymous. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.